This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. States and localities are moving ahead with further restrictions on access to nicotine-based products. Jacob Greer is author of The New Prohibition, The Dangerous Politics of Tobacco Control. We spoke last month in Chicago about the harms those nicotine restrictions and some outright bans on sales can bring. I quit smoking 10 years ago this month. Oh, congratulations. I not coincidentally, started vaping 10 years ago this month. But I have not had a cigarette in 10 years. And I am happy about that. And I'm going to keep that streak going. That's fantastic. Um, And I encourage all of you young people out there, the legions of Cater Daily Podcast listeners under the age of 30, don't smoke. It's bad for you. Um, However, what's worse than smoking is tobacco prohibition. And there are a number of states, high-level state officials who really just do not uh, understand the dangers of prohibition and are perfectly willing to dispatch police forces to enforce prohibition. So where have we seen sort of the biggest pushes so recently in the efforts to uh, perhaps once and for all, as far as they're concerned, get smoking effectively out of society? So the biggest action we're seeing right now is at state and local levels. And uh, most of the focus right now is on banning flavored products. Uh, And a lot of the time that uh, is focused on flavored e-cigarettes. Sometimes it's comprehensive in terms of all flavored products, including the big one being menthol cigarettes, uh, also oral tobaccos of various kinds. Uh, And we're seeing this, I believe, five different states have implemented at least some kind of flavor ban across the board. Uh, Also, many, many cities and localities, including where I live, which is... Uh, Multnomah County, where Portland, Oregon is. Uh, And the one that has done us the first and the longest is Massachusetts, which passed a comprehensive ban on all forms of flavored tobacco across the board, including e-cigarettes, in 2019. Okay. And how has that gone? Uh, It went about as well as I would expect, which is to say that um, it has created illicit markets and a, a very rapid and thorough substitution to people bringing in products from across state lines since Massachusetts. It's a relatively small state and is very close to uh, New Hampshire, which is where they're getting a lot of their tobacco now. So we saw uh, tax revenues based on tobacco fall by about 20% immediately following implementation of the ban and correspondingly go up in neighboring states. So it's really not too hard to figure out what was going on there, uh, that the, these goods were crossing borders. And then the people who are moving the goods across the borders are assuming some criminal liability for, for doing so because they're not paying the taxes. Exactly. And that's the point that, uh, that most progressives who advocate for these policies tend to miss, uh, because they, they talk about how the flavor ban itself does not have criminal penalties. And that's true. The, the flavor ban on its own uh, is not going to send anyone to prison, but the laws that are already in effect are the uh, state tax laws. And when, you, when people bring in these products from, from other states, they're violating the state tax laws, which are felonies, which in, in Massachusetts... Uh, that includes uh, prison sentences of up to five years. So despite what people say when, when they say there's no risk of police enforcement or, or criminal penalties for violating these flavor bans, they don't, they don't take account of how it interacts with existing tax laws, which exist pretty much everywhere. And uh, we've also seen what the governor of New York has said, that she's interested in pursuing a ban on tobacco products. Uh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, they, they have a ban on uh, flavored e-cigarettes already. They want to go to menthol cigarettes, and 
I believe they've also talked, I don't know if this was uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, mentioned uh, the possibility of just a complete ban across the board. Tell me what's going on in your home state. Uh, so I live in Portland, Oregon, which by many standards would be considered perhaps the most liberal drug jurisdiction in the world, certainly in the United States. Oregon itself. Oregon, yes, and, and in many ways led by Portland in that regard. But we were one of the first states to legalize recreational cannabis. Uh, we have decriminalized possession of nearly all drugs in the state of Oregon. Uh, we have just now begun implementing legalized psychedelic therapy. We've legalized cocktails to go. Pretty much any any drug you can name. We are one of the more liberal jurisdictions in the world. However, however, there's always a but. And the, the, the big but in Oregon is nicotine. Uh, we, uh, Multnomah County, where, which is where I live in Portland, uh, passed a flavor ban uh, recently across the board, banning all types of flavored tobacco products, uh, which is very much in tension with the general support for harm reduction that drugs get in the state of Oregon. Like if you look at opiates, there's a recognition that you know, people are going to use them, and so we need to make them as safe as possible. Uh, they don't get the same attitude toward nicotine, which is, is bizarre because it is, as we know, an incredibly deadly product in the form of cigarettes. And addictive. And addictive. Uh, but it is not seen as uh, something where harm reduction, for some reason, it just doesn't get the same uh, respect as a harm reduction approach. So flavor bans, when, people, when you say the word flavor bans, I, you, people know what that means in the context of tobacco products, where you have the, what I like to call, analog tobacco in the, in the paper that you then smoke. And the, the flavor ban, I, I get what that means. So when they apply the flavor bans to, say, vape products that are nicotine, uh, liquid nicotine uh, that is delivered that you inhale just like you would a cigarette, doesn't contain a lot of the tar and the other other chemicals that are in cigarettes, but the flavor ban applies to those. Typically, the typically they gloss over the distinction between actual tobacco and nicotine vape products. Is that about right? Yeah, that's true. And because a you know if you think about it, a nicotine vape product by itself would essentially be flavorless. So so when they say that they're banning flavors, what they basically mean is we're banning all flavors except for flavors that are modeled on tobacco. So, you, which is very weird if you're considering that you one of your goals with e-cigarettes is to help smokers quit. You know what a lot of smokers will say is the last thing they want is a vape that reminds them of a cigarette, and that's, that's right. Yeah, and give that's me, give me Fruit Loops or, or or creme brulee or something like that. But please, I don't want it to taste like a cigarette. Right, and there's, you're talking to people who who don't follow this. They they all say like, "Well, these flavors are clearly out there targeting children. Why else would?" Would they bake these? And, you know, I think if you talk to adult vapors, and this is borne out by surveys, uh, the vast majority of adult vapors also prefer non-tobacco flavors. Uh, so there's no way to, to separate those two issues. So more generally, though, it seems that the, the war on tobacco is, as you have said, a war on nicotine. Uh, cigarettes are bad for you. It's probably true that vaping is dramatically less bad for you um, but the public health establishment generally does not view uh, those two items as fundamentally different correct like the it is a, a war on nicotine at this point it's sort of an ideological stance that nicotine itself is bad and that no one should use it and that so there there is a tension there between you know wanting 
you do, are you trying to eliminate the harms of using combusted tobacco or are you trying to eliminate nicotine use regardless of its level of harm? And most people in tobacco control, with thankfully there are a lot of exceptions, but most people in tobacco control are looking to eliminate nicotine entirely. And you see this with the way these laws are written. Because, uh, you know, part of the concern with, with e-cigarettes was always youth use. Uh, but you see these laws also incorporate things like uh, nicotine pouches that are, you know, consumed like an oral tobacco. They contain no tobacco. Um, they're one of the safest forms of nicotine consumption that you could possibly imagine. They are basically ignored by teenagers. There's very, very little youth use. Like the main use of these products is adult smokers trying to quit. And they're just getting thrown into these bans as well. Yeah, just because there's a possibility that young people might be enticed to engage with these products. Yeah, if they even think about it that far. I think it's also just a general disregard for the interest of smokers and nicotine users. To the extent that that disconnect persists between um, drugs broadly, in, especially in Oregon, and nicotine specifically, especially in Oregon and, you know, left-leaning states, uh, it, it just, why does that persist? What is it? Is it is it an ideological commitment? Because there's quite a bit of evidence that nicotine itself is not that harmful. Yeah, there's a there's just a subjective perception around certain drugs. So, like if you look at you know the past century plus, say coming from the late 1800s, you know there's a pretty firm separation where caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine were viewed as almost as not drugs. Like they were just legitimate products that adults consume, and everything else was illegal drugs, even if it wasn't technically legal at the time, but they were drugs. And, and we've definitely seen a shift over the past 20 years where nicotine has been increasingly delegitimized and cannabis in particular has been increasingly legitimized as a lifestyle choice. And so like, especially in Oregon, you know, we can walk into a, a legal cannabis store and find fruit flavored candy, cannabis gummies of every kind, flavored vape products, flavored cannabis sodas like there's no tension here whatsoever uh but the idea of a flavored nicotine product is is anathema <laughs> and it makes no sense and i i have like seen advocates for our flavor bands in cocktail bars drinking they, you know they don't drink warm vodka <laughs> they they want a flavored cocktail so do you suspect that there will have to be some sort of uh reckoning with a nicotine prohibition because you know nicotine is a highly addictive people who want genuinely want to quit smoking cigarettes have a very hard time doing it to often and uh will it will we have to actually deal with police killing somebody like eric garner who only crime was selling loose cigarettes on the street is i mean are we gonna have to have more events like that before uh these these states stop and say, okay, maybe we went a little too far yeah, well, on that one. Well, I certainly hope it won't come to to a case like that. But what we will see uh, is that states like Massachusetts, where these these laws have been have been in effect for a few years now, uh, I think those are going to provide a model for other states. And if we look at the Massachusetts case, uh, we can actually see arrests have begun happening. Uh, there are, there are multiple criminal arrest and prosecutions in process in the state of Massachusetts right now. Uh, and uh, in part because of the pandemic and also just in part because criminal justice system takes a long time generally to, to work through cases. Uh, they haven't come to conclusion yet, but we are coming up 
uh, I think pretty soon we will see the first people uh, being sentenced to prison for violating these flavor bans, technically violating the tax law by selling flavored products. But either way, the outcome is the same. Uh, and so then I, I think people will have to look at that. Uh, and unfortunately, that uh, we probably will see this happen through the criminal justice system because there really isn't anyone advocating on behalf of nicotine users. You know, the anti-smoking public health groups are really more like anti-tobacco company groups than pro-consumer uh, groups who are actually looking out for the interest of people who, who use nicotine. So uh, it'll be very hard to, to lobby for these laws effectively until we have pretty clear demonstrations of what the unintended consequences are. Jacob Greer is author of The New Prohibition, The Dangerous Politics of Tobacco Control. We spoke last month in Chicago. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.